Welcome. This is Lawyer Up. I am John Gonzalez, and I'm here with my law partner, Jack DeRora, speaking to you from Columbus, Ohio. Today, we have Matt Habash, president of the Mid-Ohio Food Bank and former president of the Columbus City Council with us. Hi, Matt. Hi. Glad to be here. I want everybody to know that Matt Habash and I share a common factor in that we're both from Steubenville, Ohio. I'm just a guy from Steubenville. Matt is known as Steubenville's favorite son. Isn't that right, Matt? I wouldn't go that far, but uh, glad to have been from there. Great place to grow up. And, it was. Uh, met some amazing people there and still in contact with a lot of folks from Steubenville that I grew up with. Matt, could you uh, tell our listeners as way of uh, introduction uh, what the uh, Mid-Ohio Food Bank is and how you got into the business of minimizing hunger? Sure. Um, Mid-Ohio Food Bank um, really has been around since 1980. Um, it was designed as a, a way to collect food, surplus food in this country, and to have it brought into a centralized warehouse and then share it with partner agencies, food pantries, soup kitchens, shelters, seniors, facilities, daycares, et cetera, across now a 20-county footprint um, in Ohio. So it's been a wonderful opportunity to bring in surplus food from the food industry, surplus government food, um, and then even some purchased food and local donations um, to really make sure that nobody in our community goes hungry. You uh, say 20 uh, counties and it's uh, called Mid-Ohio Food Bank. Is it Franklin and the, uh, and the counties in uh, central Ohio, basically? Correct. Um, yeah, we've actually rebranded ourselves as the Mid-Ohio Food Collective, you know, um, and Food Bank is one of our, our five assets, but it really is Franklin County. Uh, and then it used to have 51 counties. I've been around a very long time. I started in 1984 doing this work. Um, and uh, at one point, we went clear up to Toledo, all down to the southeast of Marietta, that kind of diagonally across the state. Pittsburgh actually had Steubenville, eastern Ohio counties back in the day. And uh, we've acquired those as, as more and more it became apparent that a lot of the distribution of federal food was going to be state-based. And so we picked up the eastern counties and got food banks started in Toledo and Lima and down in Logan, Ohio, to take some of our territory. Matt, we hear the term food insecurity, but it's a term that doesn't seem to be defined. How do you view that word? What's it mean to you? Uh, I'm not a big fan of that term, okay. um, only because I think it's a subjective term, but it's really about... Do you have the resources to put food on your table tonight? Do you know where your, your meals, next meal's coming from? Have you ever been in danger of not being able to provide enough food? So it's really that kind of high arching. People confuse it with, with hunger, the term hunger. Hunger is more of an individual condition. You know, do you right now have enough food to eat today? You know, that kind of thing. So it's a different perspective. One is really resource-based. Do you have the resources to acquire your own food, you know, without having to, you know, um, basically use a, a private sector food pantry type of system. When you talk about a food bank, and I've heard of a food pantry, uh, maybe you can tell our listeners if there's a difference in basically what is a food bank? How does it get its uh, its food? So a food bank, think about it from a wholesaler supplying a retailer in, in the normal food industry. So, you know, um, Kroger has a big warehouse and then they deploy the food from there to all of their individual stores. It's very similar to that in the sense that what happened in the 70s was there was one man named John Van Hengel who was recovering from a mining. He was from Minnesota and was coming recovering in Arizona from a mining accident. Um, and he was working at his church and started collecting surplus food for the soup kitchen at the church, started collecting more food than he could use. 
um, at that church. And so the pastor basically said, you got to do something. So he found a little warehouse and started redistributing that food to other pantries and soup kitchens um, in, in the um, Phoenix area. And that is that St. Mary's Food Bank still exists today. It's the original food bank that got started. But it's this concept of a centralized warehouse bringing the food into there from, in our case, all over the United States. Um, we can bring in food and then to make that available, we actually have 680 partner agencies that we redistribute food to in our 20 county footprint. About half of those are what we call food pantries. So think of that little retail distribution. Most of them are faith-based organizations um, and we get the food to them uh, and then they in turn give it out to the uh, customer. I take it that what you do in terms of acquiring food is a combination of purchasing and a combination of donations. So tell us really how you get your resources. Yeah, most of the food we get is donated from one source or another. I mean, we purchase as a last to round out menus to prior to COVID, we were doing it as a one-stop shop because there were things we couldn't get donated. We didn't get from our government sources. Um, of food, you know, back in the 80s, it was the cheese giveaway of the 80s. It was a five pound block of cheese. That was the beginning of the federal government sharing their surplus commodities that they had, as well as we've been in, you know, working partnership with the food industry, you know, since our beginning, really bringing in, it's all about their surplus they can't sell. And most recently over the last 10 years, it's really transformed to fresh food, a lot more produce and, and fresh food coming from the farms across the United States. Um, and trying to estimate there's 10 to 14 billion pounds of produce left in the fields every year in the United States. And because of that, we're trying to capture that and bring that in. And then what we do is, you know, we use that as kind of the whole menu. And then when we can't get certain items, we'll go into the marketplace and buy. So most of our uh, money comes from individual. prior to this year, COVID's a little unique. And we got a lot more government help this year than we normally do. Normally we get government help for food, not for cost of operating our, our space and trucks. Um, but the um, this in normal years, it's donations from individuals. We have about 65,000 people that donate to us annually, corporations that help us out. We have a double your donation day in, in December where Channel 4 has partnered with us in the past, you know, to um, help us match donations. Um, but we're really dependent on the generosity of individuals to um, cover our operating expenses. Talking about that side of the uh, the uh, business, there, Matt. How if if somebody in our audience wanted to donate, uh, how would they go about that? And what type of uh, food are you looking for from individual donations? Yeah, if you're going to do food donations, um, you know, we we there's basic staples that we always need. You know, think about you know you know, peanut butter, wheat, you know, and any kind of great canned vegetable, applesauce, those, you know, those basic staple kinds of cans that you would collect, any kind of ready to eat meal, macaroni and cheese is obviously a favorite for kids, you know, so we, we pay close attention to those. If you want to make a donation, you just go to midohiofoodbank.org and there's a donate button. Um, and we're real transparent about what we do with all the money. Um, we often tell people donated food's not free when I got to pay the transportation bill to get it from California to here. Uh, and then through our logistics and out to an agency in Steubenville, you know, so we, the, the dollars come in to help cover those kinds of costs to handle the food, transport, handle it, and get it to where it's needed most. You mentioned briefly a minute ago that you're rebranding the Food Collective. After all those years, why the change of name? 
Um, I think it was a recognition, you know, several years ago, um, we started about 10 years ago, we started in diabetes research. We were one of three food banks in the United States that was looking at the question that if you are food insecure, can you manage your diabetes well? Can, if you don't have access to the foods you need, and we partnered with Bristol-Myers Squibb and Feeding America, and we use the highest state here locally um, to help. And, and it was a really awakening for us, recognizing that we were more than just finding food and getting it to a hungry person, that we really could have a health impact. That three-year research project taught us a lot about the fact that we could move people's A1Cs by getting them more regular access to fresh food. So at the same time, you know, we were asked here to lead the national charge for Feeding America, which is the 200 food banks that belong to that national network, to find the next billion pounds of produce strategy. You know, at that time, we were only getting about 350 million pounds. We knew there were billions available. We also knew the industry was the, the food industry's dry product was drying up, literally, because that was when computers got started. And you started to have things like just-in-time inventory, efficient consumer response. You know, they used to say in those days, Walmart knew the sales of every one of their stores within 15 minutes back in Bentonville, Arkansas. They got really good at planning, you know, and not having as much excess stored in public warehouses and things. So we started to see a, a decline in donations, you know, of, of packaged goods. Um, but we also, at the same time, we're doing this study recognizing nationally that there's so much fresh food. And we coupled that, we kind of call it our new DNA for a food as health strategy. We coupled that with the diabetes research and said, look, if we get you to come more often, get you fresh food in you, we're going to actually improve your health. It isn't just get you food for today. And that's been a big shift. So Part of this idea of rebranding was recognizing some of that. We had partnered with um, Primary One Health. Um, it's a federally qualified health center here in Columbus, has a number of locations, um, and started tracking. We now track about 20,000 of their patients. You know, and so it's really beginning. So that's our Mid-Ohio Pharmacy Program, spelled F-A-R-M, really having doctors write food scripts and filling that order. And then we fill the visitation data back to the healthcare provider. And they're telling us the health outcomes of how the numbers are getting better for people. So there's a big step there. We've got a Mid-Ohio Kitchen as part of that collective, which was really recognition of, we run a restaurant, we did prior to COVID, um, you know, and we were cooking for boys and girls clubs and daycares. And now we wanna cook some of this donated food that we're getting in, cause we wanna go after the issue of convenience from a health perspective. None of us go home every night and chop up vegetables and make our own meal from scratch. So why would you expect somebody that's, you know, you know, a single person that's got kids to do that every night? So what if we didn't do that? What if we cooked some of that food and had it ready to go and distributed it as a cook? So it was, we were giving people a choice that was a healthy choice for them to go home and heat it up, but it was made from scratch healthy food. So that's the kitchen. Uh, we've got a farm that we're building out. We started really this past April on this particular location and it's a, high-tech urban farm, vertical growing, gonna have aquaphonics in it, gonna use it as an education center to teach kids, you know, and other folks partnering with Ohio State, you know, partnering and helping a lot of the other urban farms and, and um, gardens that are out there to help assist them in growing strategies. How Water is always the biggest issue for an urban farm or, you know, a local garden. Um, how do they get water to the site, weeding, those kind of things. So we're teaching ways of not having to do those things. So it makes it easier. Um, and then finally, I'll talk you know, more about our Mid-Ohio Market Strategy. That's a new name for food pantries. All that to collectively together is what we now call the Mid-Ohio Food Collective. Matt, how do uh, your customers find you, or, or I guess better yet, how do you find uh, these customers that are in need of the food? 
Um, it's a variety of ways. We knew um, prior to COVID in March that on an annualized basis, we helped about 525,000 people every year. Um, the vast majority of those people come less than five times a year. You know, it's literally 36% of the people that get help from a food pantry and a food bank system um, only come once a year. That is probably the biggest you know, misnomer in our whole data is that people, they think you get free food, they come all the time. Most people do not want to be there. They're coming in as a last resort uh, and about 70% come five times or less. Um, and, you know, and so that's the norm. Now go back to that healthcare strategy and I need you to come in 12 to 24 times a year and I'll have health improvements. So we're shifting our model to come more often, take less food. It's fresh food. None of us buy our fresh food once a month. Your milk wouldn't taste very good, you know, that kind of thing. So how do we um, make it readily available for people what they, what they can use? So the customers, as we now call our clients, because we want you coming back and we want to give you good service at our, you know, with our partner agencies, distributions, that, you know, it's a variety of ways. You know, basically it's neighborhood based. There is a 211 call system that if somebody needs food, they can call 211. Um, it's run by, was run by hands-on. And social services just took that over this past year. Um, so there is a system for that. They even have a texting system. We're in the process of building out um, and, and opening up an app where you can put your own in from, normally you'd have to go to the, the site, to a pantry to get food and they'd register you and do all the typical things. Um, we're making it so that people can find out on their own where the closest food pantry is to them with the hours of operation and hopefully later this year, early next, make an appointment. And so you know, recognizing that half the people we help work, you know, and the eye opener for us and all of that you know, was when a customer said to us, I can't afford to shop at a food pantry. And it was kind of this aha, stop, the, what does that mean? And she said, I got to take a day off of work. The two days I work that week are the two days the pantry's open in my neighborhood. Because a lot of our pantries are open, very limited hours. Um, and we want to make the food more readily accessible when it matters to the customer, not when it's convenient for us to hand it out. And that's going to be a big shift in our system. So there's a lot in all of that. But um, so people find out about a variety of ways. You can also call the food bank here and we'll direct you to the closest food pantry. You can go online to our website and you'll find it that way, you know, very easily. Um, another way to get connected to a sort, hopefully close to home. That's really what we're trying to do is keep people close to home. I got on the uh, website earlier and uh, put in my um, uh, zip code and I'm in Westerville and the uh, 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 warm is uh, the Westerville food bank or food pantry um, that uh, my wife Ann and I have, um, have contributed to uh, many, many times over the years. You mentioned your customers uh, would have to register. What type of qualifications, if any, would somebody have to meet to uh, be able to, uh, to get food from a pantry? Um, basically, we normally work with people that live or earn below 200% of poverty. So that's the norm. But the COVID, it's up to 230%. But what that means, the, most people don't know what that means. You know, But I think $40,000 for a family of three, about $23,000, $24,000 for a single person, and you would be eligible to get food. Those are government restrictions because of the government foods that we handle. Put those kind of limits on us in terms of the level of income. But across a 20-county footprint, that's about 780,000 people here in Franklin County. That's over 400,000 people. So roughly a third of Franklin County is in that income band below 200% of poverty. 
Um, so those are the folks that, that comp, you know, are eligible to come. Um, it's a self-declaration process. We're not allowed to ask income and do income verification. That's a government rule that was put in place. They self-declare they're below those income guidelines. Um, and then they can get access to food. And I often get asked by, you know, donors, how do you know people really need it? I said, well, I'm not in their house looking in their pantries, you know, in their closets and refrigerator. But I said, how much of the dollar do you, that you just gave me as a donor, do you want me to use to catch the cheaters? You know, and they look at me and say, none, I want you to use it to, you know, provide food. I say, exactly. Very few people, because it's a really difficult thing to go ask for help at a food pantry. You know, it, it is hard. And, and you know, we're seeing that today. You know, we know um, since March 1st, because of our data tracking system, we've had 45,000 families get help since March 1st um, that have never, ever asked for help before, not even once in the last 10 years of collecting data. That's COVID. And that's what's happened. About two thirds of those are in Franklin County of, of those families. So big, um, big numbers. You know, a lot of us saw even um, at our own grocery stores, um, uh, you know, hard to get items not being on the shelves. Did the food pantries uh, have any uh, issues with uh, their stocks or any particular items that were hard to get? Um, we made a decision really early that turned out to be a, a really good one. Um, back when the governor was first talking in early March about closing down the Arnold. You know, we immediately put a, we have a disaster plan. We have a, food banks are really good at disaster relief. Normally it's go down south and help with hurricanes. And we all pitch in and do things to make sure that that happens and that there's good support. But in this case, it was happening all over the country. We learned quickly from looking at what was happening in Seattle and New York, that there were runs on grocery stores and that stuff. And none of that had hit here. There hadn't even been a case in Ohio when he was having that conversation. Um, but we went out and and bought and purchased a hundred and turned out to be at the time about 150 tractor trailer loads of food. We started ordering food. We started ordering personal care items. Um, you know, a couple about a few weeks later, we started looking for toilet paper. You know, um, kind of thing. We actually found that it was in Spanish, and we figured people probably knew what to do with it. They didn't need any help. Um, <laughs> So we weren't too worried about that, but, but it literally, it put us ahead of a lot of other food banks and, you know, and other food places looking for food in the queue of getting those semis delivered to us. To put that in perspective, from July until March, we had only ordered 50 truckloads of food on all those months prior to that. So we did that. We just recently did that again. We've been buying since, but not as much because we what we knew was when they were talking about the, um, stimulus packages that there would be some food coming out of that that we would get but we knew it would take months before it got through the government bureaucracy before we'd get it so we decided before we had any money planned for this we went and bought all those trucks and started to figure out and people have been very generous in helping us you know pay for that kind of thing and that's enabled us to stock our shelves um with dry goods along with we still we're up 20 percent in the amount of produce we've moved over the same period from a year ago so those are, we make sure the two things we've tried to tell everybody is if you need food, we have it. And if you're prioritizing your expenses because somebody in your household lost a job or you both lost your job, you know, food should be the lower priorities. Pay your rent, pay your mortgage, pay your utility bills, do whatever else you need, your health care, whatever it is that you need to pay and come get food. 
but you know, and we're still trying to get that message out. There was a story in the dispatch a few weeks ago about an amazingly resilient family that, um, you know, she was a, um, retired from the military. I think it was a Marines. Both of them lost their jobs. They had a, a child with some special needs. Um, and she kept saying, with my stimulus check, I did this. And she was walking through how she prioritized in this article. Um, but she kept prioritizing food. So it ended up being a USA Today story and went national. And we got a hold of, through the reporter, we were able to get a hold of her. And said, and she couldn't get snapped for whatever reason, which is food stamps. And we helped her get that. And we figured it out. But we also said we wanted her to understand. Because they were taking jobs, washing cars, buying their own cleaning supplies. And the deep, they were doing everything that they could. And, you know, we just wanted to assure them, look, there's food available. Spend your dollars on your other limit expenses you have since you have limited income. And that's a story that we could repeat all over. So we really try to get that message out. And, we, and our, we've been very lucky that 95% of our agencies stayed open. They did not close. In a lot of other cities, a lot of the agencies shut down when COVID happened. So that's the kind of thing we were lucky. So we wanted to make sure we had food and we could get it to them. Matt, it sounds to me like you're really a master logistician in terms of knowing what to get, when to get it, and where to and where to send it. I compliment you on a skill set that you probably never envisioned you'd have. Fortunately for me, I have an amazing team of folks that do that with me now. So I mean, literally, Dave Daniel was the former head of Giant Eagle, is our sourcer of food. You know, Rob Camp, who was an executive with um, White Castle, was our logistics you know, operations person running all the warehouse operations. And Brad Draper, who used to run all Lutheran social pantries across you know, a, a pretty broad footprint, does all of our agency and customer service work. So those three together with a whole team of people to help find the money and tell the stories. Of, I mean, I've got an amazingly resilient team of 150 people, you know, which is you know, that's the good news. The bad news is when I took this job, I wanted to go out of business. And I only had six people when I started, you know, so <laughs> that's, that's the irony of the whole thing. Um, but that team does an amazing job and they've got people to work underneath them that just, they say, yes, we, we took on challenges. We, we've well, already had 68,000 meals for homeless people when they deconcentrated the homeless shelters downtown. Um, we weren't cooking those kind of meals previous to COVID, but when a lot of our after school programs closed because the schools were closed, where we were cooking meals for, um, we shifted that kitchen staff to cooking meals to make sure that the homeless, you know, had plenty of meals. The guards been with us since March. We're feeding them every day when they're in here as well, you know, since they're driving from all over the place to come here. And we couldn't have done this work without the National Guard. That's interesting. I, I had heard of the National Guard having some role, but I'm clueless as to what really the, the guard's role is. Early in March, when this all started, the High Association of Food Banks, which is all 12 food banks in Ohio that cover all 88 counties, came together and said, hey, we're going to need help. And we're going to lose our volunteers. We had normally, in a normal year, we'd have 13,000 different individuals putting in over 70,000 hours of packing time, helping us pack food in our warehouse or even our case. We have a pantry on site operating our food pantry or, you know, helping out in other ways we need assistance. Um, and we were going to lose all that. Basically, senior citizens were told to stay home. And a lot, more than half our volunteers are corporate volunteers, you know, and they were all being told to stay home. So that workforce was going to be gone. Um, we needed help. The national the governor declared that we could have them. We asked for 100 National Guards people and we got them. Um, so they've been staffing, you know, our pantry, staffing our packing operations. We make up 6,000 boxes every month for seniors. 
Um, they literally did distributions in other counties for us because, you know, the people couldn't come out to do our produce drops where we drop produce and have a little farmer's market. Two senior centers in Guernsey County, uh, you know, and Noble um, closed. Um, and they did our senior distributions for us over there. They drove the food over and did it. So anything we've asked them to do, and they are logistical whizzes. I mean, they've literally helped us um, maintain. About in August, that got cut to about 50, and they're scheduled to be gone in the middle of December. We don't know whether that's, you know, we're hoping we can have them longer um, because the pandemic is getting worse right now. Um, but we don't know that. So we've made some plans for volunteers to come back. We've used some of the resources that people donated to us to hire temporary workers, to have some additional staff on board. People need a job. We were able to give them a job um, and to help out. So we kind of have a three prong approach now, some volunteers, some paid additional staff and still have some guards people assisting us every day. I get the impression that we could probably track the volume of food that you disperse by economic times. Like right now it's through the roof, great recession. It was through the roof, but I also get the sense there's probably no time when you and your team get to put your feet up and relax. It's a steady drain of it's a, not a steady drain. It's a steady call for help, isn't it? It is. And I think it's, you know, things we don't think about. Everybody assumes, you know, we're heading into our busiest time because of the holidays and we do a lot of extra things for the holidays. Um, but our actual busiest time often was in the summertime. Think about two kids not getting two meals a day and maybe a third snack, you know, for the eight or nine weeks that the summer recess normally would happen. Um, that's when we would see everybody says, oh, summer it drops. Well, it actually doesn't because of that. Um, so it's a year round. It's a growing problem in this country, unfortunately. And I think it's, you know, people say, you know, why? And I'm like, well, We've had a 40 plus year history of productivity and profitability going up and wages not keeping pace. You know, there's a, they call it the productivity gap. And they estimate that over 43% of America makes $15 an hour or less. And that level of income, that's, you know, when you know, got 40%, that's a lot of people living on the edge. And, you know, we've learned that even partnering with Columbus State. We opened a mid-Ohio market on Columbus State's campus wanting to assist the students. These students are in their thirties, you know, trying to get that second job as Dr. Harrison calls it, that will pay them more money so that they can, you know, have their own, you know, live without needing assistance um, from anybody. And they were struggling. He says six to 7,000 students every year who had completed one of their two year degree had to quit, not for finance or for academic reasons, but because life happened to them. And something goes wrong and they're living on the flat tire can end a lot of things. You can end your job. It can end a lot of things, not having money to put in the gas tank. All of those things are real for a lot of people. And we've seen it, you know, the affordable housing, the housing prices are climbing. And you know, there's been a lot of stories recently about how much housing has gone up. We're not anywhere near building enough housing, according to the building industry. Um, and we're woefully under building housing on an annual basis, which means it's just going to be more pressure on that housing. And if we're a job center for a lot of other counties, people want to come here to work. Um, it's going to be, it's a challenge. And I think those are the root causes. It's a resource question. And those are the real root causes, you know, why food security exists. I said at a summit at Ohio State a few years ago that food insecurity has nothing to do with food. It really is a resource question. There's plenty of food in this country to feed everybody, but it's a resource question about who has access to it, who can afford it, and where it's at. So really, what so if we're to look at the big picture, what you're saying is the root cause is what we read about in terms of income inequality and and wages just 
being suppressed. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's fundamental. We had a shift about five years ago here at the food bank because we were really good, as you said, in moving food. We can find it. We can get it to where it needs to be. And we're, but when we did a missing meal index, which for us, when I said I didn't like the food security data, you know, it was because it's too subjective. We said we hired a research firm and partnered with them to say, what's the missing meal index in our 20 county area? And, and that index, and basically what that means is how much of your food comes from your own money, how much comes from government support, how much comes from charity care, and what's the gap? So figure 780,000 people times three meals a day, and you start to run formulas and things, and looking at all of those sources. Um, and, it, and when we did that in 15 and 16, it was 145 million missing meals across our 20 county footprint. A little more than half of those were here in Franklin County. And when you do that, you're saying, well, you're not going to food bank your way out of that kind of problem. Um, you know, so because nobody was going to put a dollar a meal on that and nobody was going to give the food bank 145 million more dollars per year to address the issue. That's so we started because of that data, basically saying as our board and everybody took a look at the issue and said, how can we start talking about root causes? And. I think it was five and a half years ago, we went to maybe six now, we went to $15 an hour at our own operation saying, well, if I'm going to go tell everybody else we need to raise wages, we better do it ourselves. And we did. And the board was very supportive. And, you know, we're got, we, people have passed us up. You know, we've gone up some, but, you know, people offering $18 an hour, you know, right now, but you better be able to be able to get to Licking County or Madison County and places where the, you know, where the jobs are going, you know, with the big distribution centers. Um, but that's the reality of how many people were living on the edge. And we said, we need better strategies. Um, we need to try to cut healthcare costs and see ourselves as a healthcare solution. So we stepped into that root cause work and, and we're taking on the issue of racism. And we basically said, if you want to end hunger, you got to end poverty. If you want to end poverty, you got to end racism. And we got to learn how to talk about it. So We've had 140 of our 145 people at the time go through training already. We get, kind of paused it because of a issue with the president and um, banning that nationally and that having impact on whether or not our federal contracts would be in jeopardy um, around handling food. So, But we're going to continue it and we're going to step into that. We're going to work to educate the community. There's a reason the eight poverty neighborhoods exist and it was because of disinvestment 100 years ago in those neighborhoods. You know, back when we had, you know, segregation and redlining as federal policy. Wait a minute. You, you glossed over something that I think I'm aware of, but I bet most people aren't. Tell us about the president's executive action or executive order regarding. Oh, well, when it came out, and most people training. thought it was like, OK, at the federal offices, you're not allowed to do, you know, racial equity training. You know, that was starting to take off. A lot of corporations have been stepping into that space. Well, some attorneys have interpreted that all the way down to if you have an agreement with the federal government, you can't do it either. And so to err on the side of being safe, the attorneys are saying, wait. And then the election happened. They said, well, wait till January. And then you can go back doing it because most likely that's going to disappear. Um, so we paused. You know, we were doing some community wide work training. You know, you know, we raised dollars to train hopefully 6,000 human service workers in our nonprofits and their boards, um, you know, with the idea that we could begin this training for organizations that probably couldn't afford to do what other people could do. And we wanted to start there and where we were underway and, and the attorneys, you know, have recommended pausing it. So we're going to pause it for a few months and get back at it. Matt, can you, uh, 
talk to our listeners a little bit about what uh, you see as far as who volunteers to help at the food bank. And if somebody did want to um, donate their time to help you out, how they'd go about uh, getting in touch with you and, um, and what they could be expected to do. Sure. In the world of electronics, the easiest thing to do is go to midohiofoodbank.org. Um, we have a volunteer hub button on there, so you can electronically schedule yourself as to when you want to come. So it simplifies the process a lot um, and lets people pick and choose when it's convenient for them to come. You know, the, and basically, it's, you know, we basically take anybody from you know, teenagers on up. You know, um, we do, we're a little careful with the really young ones in here because we got a lot of heavy equipment. Yeah, that runs around and we don't want, you know, it's hard to see what a forklift sometimes. So um, we discourage, you know, um, the real small ones from coming here. Um, but you can volunteer here. You can volunteer at any one of our partner agencies. So if you want to stay in your own community, you know, you, you know, you mentioned warm, warm's a wonderful operation in Westerville, you know, and helping them out is equally important. And we tell people, you know, find your passion, find your place where you want to help. You want to come pack food here. We've even tried some stuff during COVID said, bring your pod. If you're hanging out with a small group of people that you know you're safe, we'll keep you safe while you're here. Mm-hmm. You know, because we've had to you know, basically do a lot of social distancing as we pack boxes and things and do other projects. But we'll keep your pod together and you can stay safe while you're here because you're going to get temperature checked when you come in here. You're going to have to wear a mat. We do everything that you know, we can because the last thing we want to do is have our operation shut down you know, because of a COVID situation. So we're being really, really cautious. We have a lot of staff working from home, you know, and we've been doing that like everybody else um, so that we can keep people safe and stay functional. But the volunteers can come in and help pack food. They can help work in our pantry right now, which is a no-touch model. We've had to totally shift our pantry models. Used to be you'd come in and shop like a grocery store. We've stopped all of that. It is like, we're like the grocery store that brings it out and puts it in your car now. You know, so we've shifted our model to a no-touch model. We got a big tent in the parking lot, so we can, when it's raining, keep everybody dry. But you don't even have to get out of your car; you don't have to roll down your window. We got an electronic way of getting your signature. We're trying really hard to keep everybody safe, and we've taught those practices to our other partner agencies and their distributions as well. Matt, I saw in the news. I think it was last night on CBS. It was a line at the Dallas Food Bank. I don't know how long it was. I don't think I'm exaggerating if it, you know, with the snaking around, if it went a half a mile, I assume that you're seeing the same tremendous increase right now. We, we are, but as I said, one of the advantages we've had is that our agency stayed open. So we've worked really hard at um, getting food to them so that there aren't those long lines. I think early in COVID last March or April it was a wonderful food bank in San Antonio uh, and they had 10,000, they planned for 6,000, ended up with 10,000 cars coming through. It was a visual that made it on the internet and everybody saw it. Pittsburgh did something similar at the airport. We haven't had to do a lot of that. On a busy day, um, our food pantry um, tomorrow will serve over 800 families here, just driving through at our pantry. Not, so, but we'll do that in a matter of what, two, three hour shifts, one in the morning, one in the evening. Um, you know, Saturday, last Saturday, we did almost 700 cars in four hours. Um, those are small compared to that. We did a couple every other week. We were at the casino when it was closed. And now we use the uh, Westland Mall site to have to do a distribution because we're a little 
shy on the number of agencies on the far west side of Columbus. So we'll do a distribution out there. And we usually get three to 500 cars coming through. So we don't have these thousands and thousands. Cleveland has one in a muni lot in Cleveland's 3,000 cars, you know, when they, when they do theirs. But a lot of their big agencies closed. They didn't, couldn't get the volunteers there. So, as I said, we've been very lucky that our agencies have stayed open. The ones that have closed were really working out of schools, and the schools were closed. So um, that's kept us from having to do those big mass distributions. I will do everything I can to make sure we don't have to do that so we can get the food to the community where the people live. They're not sitting in line burning gas. I mean, food banks have had to put up porta johns. They've had to do all have tow trucks there, have jumpers, cars die, you know, think about all the things. You got an old car and it breaks down um, and, and be able to help. So we're doing everything we can to be much more customer centric. But, and only way we could do that is because our agencies have been so good. Is there a uh, general message you'd like to send out to Central Ohio about hunger, poverty, and maybe what contributions citizens can make in terms of alleviating the problem outside of the easy thing of making donations. Sure, I mean, I, I, you know, hunger was a bit, was a growing problem prior to COVID. COVID, in many ways, just unmasked how many people were living on the edge, and then introduced hunger and food insecurity to, as I said, forty-five thousand families that have never ever had to ask for help. That number is probably going to be 50,000 before we get to Thanksgiving. Um, it'll continue to grow. Um, and for people that, you know, as stimulus packages don't happen and unemployment pack, all those things that help people, those things matter. And they gave people their own resources. So recognizing the problem is going to continue to grow. You know, the message I have is, you know, is first, thank you. I mean, so many people in this community said, what can we do to help? They have sent in the donations. And one of the things we're doing with that is we're taking, I like to say we're running a marathon. We're doing it at a sprinter's pace. I used to say, teach people it was, a, it was a marathon, not a sprint. I said, well, the pace by which we're distributing food, which is 25 to 30% higher than the same time a year ago, you know, it's continuing. Um, our partner agencies, we've asked them to give more food per visit so people don't have to come out as often. Um, but because of that, the generosity and the support we're getting is, we're telling people this is a three to five year runway. Jack, you mentioned you know, the Great Recession. It was this same thing back then. This one could be worse because I think there's more layoffs coming. There's more after the first of the year. You know, what's going to happen to retail? And there's a lot of articles showing up about, you know, we were worried about artificial intelligence and the future of work and the impact that was going to have on retail workforce and jobs for people that had coddled together, you know, a couple of jobs to make it work or two or three, in some cases three. Um, and one of those jobs goes away, there goes your budget, you know, and their companies are learning to automate faster, you know, and online ordering for groceries, all those kind of things are going to happen, delivery to your door, you know, from Amazon and everybody else. Those are, you know, going to impact a lot of people. Um, so we were worried before, and we're going to be more worried now in terms of what's the future workforce look like and how long is it going to take? So a lot of the dollars we're saying, we're gonna spread them out so that we can continue to have food in all of 21 and probably into 22 at this pace. We don't see any end in sight. It's gonna, you know, the vaccine's not gonna mysteriously put everybody back to work, you know, when that does happen and how long is it, you know, all the issues with taking a vaccine. So all of those play, but, you know, for people that wanna help, you know, a lot of this has helped too. You know, you asked that question earlier, you know, in terms of what can volunteers do and it's not food, it's advocate. 
hardest thing for people to do. Ask your, you know, call your congressman, tell them what you, that people need help. This is real. It's not, you know, it's not going to go away. Um, this is for, you know, a lot of these people are helping now. It's not through any fault of their own. They didn't do anything. The pandemic showed up and all of a sudden their lives got disrupted. So we're just saying to people, let your congressman know, let's, they've got to step up and help. Um, and that's the you know, same thing at the state house, you know, and get those messages to people that, you know, this is your neighbors. I mean, hunger exists in New Albany and Westerville and where they all across the outer belt, Delaware County, places you wouldn't think there's a lot of, and it's, it's your neighbors and you're helping your neighbors when you make donations, bring food, volunteer, work at a pantry, work on our food bank, but you can also spread the word that this is through no fault of their own raising awareness about and talk more about wages. I mean, we're afraid of that issue. We're more afraid of racism and talking that conversation, but even the wage issue scares anybody. And there's a lot of myths about it. The reality of it is it hasn't kept pace in the last 40 years in this country. We could do a lot better than we're doing. If we start to say, how do we solve these challenges? And you got to bring a divided country together to do that. And speaking of wages, I've been reading that since the Great Recession, it's the people at the bottom third of the ladder who have not caught up. People in the middle and the very top regained where to the point to where they were. But those at the bottom third, no such luck. And I think even when you think about that, it's the people just above the benefit levels. So you lose SNAP at 130% of poverty. You lose Medicaid health care at 138%. Of so the people that are above that making $14, $15 an hour, maybe have two, in, you know, two jobs, you know, they don't get any help. You know, and those are the people that you know, one of those jobs goes away and they're going to fall right in to needing more help. But you know, so I remind everybody prior to the last tax cut, all of us got a housing subsidy. You know, maybe not as many people these days, you know, with, you know, not itemizing their tax deductions, but, you know, you know, for all of us that did that, that was a housing subsidy. So if you get yours direct from the government, we think it's bad. If you get it through tax break, you know, it's, it's good. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's the same thing. You know, I tell farmers that same thing. You follow your land and get paid by the government. You know, you call that welfare. People getting paid to do nothing. You know, I, you know you're getting subsidies right now galore because you can't sell your products overseas. You know, but everybody's special interest is their own is good. When it's somebody else's, it's not so good. You know, and that's the reality of that. But we've got to come together and say, what does it take? What's this country want to be? You know, we got a lot of challenges, but there should not be a hunger problem in America. We got plenty of food. We just got to figure out how to get it to where it needs to be and come up with strategies so people have the ability to go to the grocery store. I still would love to go out of business. Matt, um, thank you for the important work you do and the important work of the Mid-Ohio Food Collective. Um, you're saving lives, you're giving hope, and um, Jack and I uh, appreciate so much you spending a little bit of time with us and our listeners to explain this important work. Thank you. Well, thank both of you, and I really enjoy all the work you guys do, your blogs, the writing, everything, Jack, things you've put. You get people thinking, and that's in challenge, and I think that's extremely important today. Thank you. Well, you're nice to say that. And Matt, while I may chide you about being Steubenville's favorite son, in fact, the work you do is a great example of patriotism because you're watching out for the community. And that's what, that's really what patriotism is, helping others, leading the charge. So thanks. Yep. And we're actually going to have for you our Mid-Ohio Market in Treasures Island in Steubenville. 
No way. Urban Mission, which is a big agency up there, bought that whole plaza. Um, and they got renters in part of it. And uh, they are going to be able to open up a really good market. So one of the blessings for me is, you know, I'm able to use, you know, this work to give back to Studentville. You know, and make I, sure the people there are, are fed. God bless. Hey, we'll be back December 17. Uh, and the topic on December 17 will be climate change. You can look for us on our, you can uh, subscribe to our website or subscribe to our podcast by going to our website, which is Lawyer Up Columbus. And you can download us from your favorite podcast app on your phone. So we'll be back in, a, in about three or four weeks. Until then, remember to lawyer up. So long.